0: The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com.
1: Oh hello. It's Wednesday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Uh, Gather around the table this Wednesday, we've got Patrick Klepik. Hello. And Danielle Riando.
2: Hi, hello.
1: Austin is out on vacation that isn't really a vacation. (laughs) And Natalie is uh, down with the autumn plague, uh, soon to be followed by the winter plagues.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: Uh, Get your flu shot. Get them. Don't think that's what what is uh, what, what's troubling Natalie, but nevertheless, flu shot's always good. Uh, good for other people too. Uh, anyway, so you know, for the last couple of months, I think it's been Danielle who's been really excited about how positive and supportive Instagram is compared to like Twitter and other social media. <laughs> it is true. Uh, it's true. It's one hundred percent the case. Patrick, it looks like your Waypoint this week is all about explaining to Danielle about why she's wrong and Instagram is bad,
0: actually. Well, um, folks that are aware of the Waypoint uh, podcast canon know that Danielle and I are now married. And so this is now part of this dynamic is you got to start tearing that white. You know, you got to put them in check every once in a while. And this is just one of those
1: things.
2: It's that
0: classic Sam and Diane (laughs)
1: podcast
0: (laughs) dynamic.
2: Classic. (laughs) Truly Sam and Diane
1: were, were a famous couple in uh, sitcom history, kids, uh, if you didn't know that. You can watch Cheers on Netflix. <laughs> anyway, are all in can our 30s.
2: You? It's fine. I
0: think Can't. you can. I think you okay. can. Um, yeah, so uh, there is a, a piece by uh, Taylor Lorenz who uh, is a great uh, Twitter follow. Uh, if you are like me and that you are interested in internet culture, uh, especially on social networks, especially on YouTube, but don't have the time to kind of delve into that stuff yourself. Like, I certainly, Waypoint uh, has talked about things, you know, we talk about PewDiePie, like, we, we talk about John JonTron, like, there are in, uh, times where we get into that culture, but it's always, like, very specific to games and, and sort of on a case-by-case basis. And uh, Taylor uh, Lorenz is just a terrific reporter um, who does deep dives into this stuff in a, in a way that I find to be, like, very accessible. Um, so that's just an aside for um, just kind of following this person's work outside of this uh, piece, which, uh, yeah, I ran in the Atlantic. Uh, it's called, Instagram has a massive... Harassment problem. Um, and it basically walks through the the narrative that is presented by Instagram is that they are the nice social network. It is where you go to feel good about yourself. Um, they do all sorts of like promotional events that are about like sexual and body positivity and like anti-bullying and all sort of, And these these sorts of things are outlined in the piece. Um, and if you read any sort of the, the fluffy profiles of Instagram and their approach to what, how they want their social network to be, um, that is very much core to their at least PR ethos. Um, and what this piece does is sort of breaks down well, what is actually happening on the ground, what is actually happening to users. Um, and what uh, Taylor – this is something that's been discussed before, but I, what I found provocative about Taylor's piece is the way she pe- pulls all of the threads together – uh, to sort of dismantle Instagram's own uh, narrative because uh, I, like Danielle, um, really like Instagram has sort of become my day-to-day social network. Like yep. the hierarchy, the hierarchy for me. And I'd be curious how uh, the rest of you shakes out for everyone else. Is like Twitter is something I engage with uh, largely in a professional capacity. Um, because I find stories there. I communicate with an audience there. Uh, it is it is critical to the success. Like the uh like uh, page view success of my stories often is to to be on Twitter. And so Twitter um, has less become a personal outlet as much as a professional outlet. And, you know, we could do a whole separate podcast about how all that stuff intermingles, but that is kind of where it sits in terms of how I view Twitter. I don't have a private Twitter, um, which I know is very common for a lot of people to, so they can kind of like turn Twitter into a a smaller, more personal platform. Um, And then uh, it's Instagram, uh, which I, I transitioned to, largely because that's where I saw all my friends going to. Like the emergence of Instagram stories um, in which people could take like short video and uh, text clips and like share those in a, I think it's 12 or 13 seconds is roughly what you can share an Instagram story. Um, that just took over all like my 30-something and a late 20-something friends. They shifted from Facebook to Instagram. And so if I wanted to interact with those people, like – I found, like, interactions dropping on Facebook, but interactions skyrocketing on Instagram. So I moved over there. um, And I also have a private account, which is where, like, I share things about my family and stuff like that. Um, And then Facebook is, for my extended family members, traditionally, like, 40 and above, who is just a Jessica Rose Clubbick repository (laughs) for photos. Um, um, I could text those to them. I could email them to them. In my heart of hearts, I know it will not do that. And so Facebook is just a place to share photos of my daughter so that my extended family can see her when they don't, you know, when it's not holidays and things like that. So that's where I fall on this piece on my social networks. And and Daniel, given the way that I know, like, you used Instagram, but I, it, you, don't, you have kind of vocalized a, like, newfound enjoyment of the the positivity and community of in Instagram. So I'm curious how reading a piece like this, what your experience has been like and how that transition has kind of taken place
2: yeah, I, I feel very much like, well, so I've had Instagram since twenty thirteen. I think. I've had an account and you know, posted every now and then, kind of I think there were like years in between. Uh, but a few months ago, sort of refound it as a as a very happy positive platform for me because that's where all my training partners are. All my jock friends mm-hmm. are on Instagram. They're on Facebook as well, and that's where I connect with some of them, and that's where like some of my like like my queer grappling group that is primarily on Instagram and Facebook. So like I use, I use both of them for those kinds of things. But, like, yeah, all my sporty friends, they're not on Twitter. <laughs> they're definitely on Instagram and, and Facebook. So I started with that and being like, oh, I should, I should connect with all these people. I should, you know, like, I should connect with them online because I see them in person, you know, if we're going to train a particular day, if we want to talk about that sort of thing. And then just fell in completely because I do, like – uh I do like the platform but that was not to say that I think it's perfect and obviously this piece goes into a whole bunch of reasons why that is that is true. Um so it's one of those things where it's like I I don't deny anything in this piece. This piece is beautifully put together. Um the fact that I've had good experiences on the platform does not negate horrible experiences and especially the way that it has been used uh by teens. You know I know that that portion of it is is really kind of telling and really kind of scary. Ah, uh, but i yeah it's
0: horrifying yeah <laughs> oh it, it's my, really
2: they're... it's really messed up i like there's also the fact that like instagram has become something of a dating platform for queer yeah. women there's like a special subset of like dating things you can do uh are those of, like hashtags
0: thing? like what are i don't want to like give away the game uh, no it's fine it's, it's it's, it's, there's an ask, actual but... thing
2: uh it, like a personal ad service f- specifically for queer women and uh, like femmes and non-binary and femme identified like it's it's a very inclusive definition uh, uh hmm. for you know women non-binary and and femme identified folks who want to date each other And you could actually, like, put out a personal ad and, like, other people will see that. And it's attached to your profile, so it's much more awesome than, like, traditional dating services where you have a profile that you've cultivated for just dating. Instead, it's like, oh, this is your Instagram profile, which, of course, you've cultivated to some degree, but it might not be as, like... (sighs) as constructed just for dating the way that people will make a profile just for dating. That is like <laughs> the hierarchy. Very... Of like the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the
0: exactly. hierarchy of like, like you're like, uh, all social networks are like a, a version of yourself that you want to present. And it sounds like th- th- your version of Instagram or where you've got it now is one where it's like, it's just, it's like, it, it runs that line of like, it is your true self in so much as any of these social networks yeah. are, are a, a, a curated reflection of our true self.
2: Exactly. Exactly. But again, just because I've had positive experiences does not <laughs> negate well, the fact that there are issues with this platform.
1: So. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's really scary about this is it very much seems like an Eye of Sauron type thing. Where sure. like if the crowd never really latches on to like fucking up your social media shit, uh, you'll be fine. Like Instagram seems like it'll be a cool, fun platform to hang out on but it seems totally unable to handle the fact that like there is a ton of brigading uh that happens particularly of like women with any kind of profile or even not like you know just women who like comment on the wrong post that day uh you know the the mob decides to come after them and then there is the other aspect of like this is the new cruelty for high schoolers to right. to an extent as well, and neither. Oh, of these it goes things... younger than
0: that. Like my, I've heard from family members, like it starts and it starts as soon as you make the mistake of like giving your kid access to like an old phone or an yeah. iPad, oh, and so as young as as young as middle school is where like this stuff kicks off, and like this is like let me let me read this quick passage, which is what how the the article opens um, to kind of give a sense of like what what Rob is is alluding to here. So I'm um, quoting from Taylor's piece. <clears throat> Uh, When Brandon Farbstein uh, first joined Instagram in 2014, he was 14 and optimistic. Uh, Farbstein was born with a rare form of dwarfism. He wanted to use the photo sharing site to educate people about his condition. to, as he told me, quote, "'Show people a glimpse into my life and inspire people.'" Soon enough, though, the hateful messages started coming. Death threats, uh, expletive-laden comments about his appearance, worse. A meme page put his face on Hitler's body. Multiple accounts popped up with the explicit purpose of taunting him. His house was swatted. When he does a live video, the insults float on screen fast and furious. Quote, it's been hard to keep my composure, Farsine told me. After trolls started posting pictures of him in the hallways at his high school, he started to fear for his safety. Eventually, he left and finished high school online. Quote, my entire experience of high school was completely ruined by Instagram harassment, he said. It's draining. It's anxiety producing. I'm used to people calling me names, but it's when people say that they're going to kill me or come find my family, that really gets me in a sense of pure terror. Really, nothing can prevent or get in the way of that taking over your thoughts and emotions. And so, like, this isn't just... Like random internet bullies. I think a lot of times we talk about harassment. Um, it is targeted. It's terrible. It is traumatic. But often it is this vi- it's it's this viral mob, right? It's 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 the eye of Sauron. It's you you you're an SJW. You you said something about James Gunn or whatever. Like there is some something like that. Things just get pointed your way. And certainly that happens on like a micro level and, and amongst like school communities and in high school and middle school. And but that stuff is so not that just remembering what it was like to be in middle school and high school and how you felt like, yes, people could were often mean and cruel, but what, what social networking has done is made the ability to do that, especially in public ways. So fucking easy. Um, Like it, not that it wasn't easy before, but this is a tap of a finger. It is, it is thoughtless to a degree that clearly none of these social networks thought about the consequences of what you put this in the hands of just like ruthless mean kids of which, many of us probably participated in, you know, unknowingly because kids are often just fucking cruel.
1: Yeah. And I think the, on the other hand though, we are so far past where like nobody could have foreseen. The sure. Yes. to Check out <laughs> it, knowing, like, it's, passage, it's knowing ignorance. Yeah. The passage that really leaped out for me, and this dovetails with the piece we discussed last week about Facebook, because basically these are the same company, right? Mm-hmm. Like this owned yeah, by the like, same company. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But there's a passage here uh, where they describe the moderation teams. According to an Instagram spokesperson, Facebook and Instagram share a team of 20,000 people working on safety and security across both platforms. Of that team, 7,500 people, a mix of contractors, full-time employees, and staff from partner companies are tasked with reviewing content for the more than 1 billion people who use Instagram and 2 billion who use Facebook every month around the world that is effectively not moderated at all. Yeah. Like for that scale, you like effectively what you've, what you've decided is, you know, you're looking at a massive, like jagged iceberg hole in the hall. And you've like put some, like a strip of duct tape over one part of it. That's kind of, that's basically what you're doing here. Um, and even there by the way i love the partner companies which like, i think we all pretty
0: much know like how that's how that deal's probably structured uh, in terms oh, of and those oh and those benefits. are probably the the I, I think there was a piece in the new yorker this and and motherboard i believe did a piece here this year about like these different companies that are often contract workers that are tasked with moderating you know the worst parts of humanity um go read one of those go read some of those articles if you want to just but, be I read that story eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Talking
1: about oh, people yeah. who tried to moderate YouTube and like there were sure. like teams within Google of like contractors who was like, "All right, you need to watch all these like sketchy YouTube videos to make sure that like none of them are bad before you like put them out to the public." And it was a lot of bad shit, and people saw a lot of like traumatizing things. Uh, but it's just deeply there's there's I think two really frustrating things here. Uh, one is that like. The human nature problem of just the shitty behavior that social media sort of allows and exacerbates, but then there's the other problem of the sort of willful naivete we see about this problem consistently. This constant like bumblefuck response yeah. uh, to an old and ongoing phenomenon of like, well, gee, I just couldn't have couldn't have anticipated this volume of uh, you know bad activity. New York Times Day is running a story about how Facebook. Uh, Still isn't really grappling with the fact that, like, literally uh, in the uh, Myanmar genocide of the Rohingya, uh, literally, like, Facebook was, like, used as a weapon. It was part of the, like, military campaign of ethnic cleansing. It was a tool. It was coordinated. And it was coordinated using, like, basic, like, manipulation of Facebook tactics. Um, that, That entire crisis maybe doesn't happen or doesn't happen the same way. If Facebook operates differently, responsibly, or with a modicum of effective moderation, or but any instead, accountability, right? Yeah, but <laughs> to instead, anyone. it's this
2: constant like, <laughs> well,
0: it's a big world out there, and we're just one company. Well, and then you know you have you know one of the rare times in which uh, you know th- these powerful people come b- before you know the U.S. Senate. Like there were these hearings recently. Like Mark Zuckerberg came out of his. Uh, whole, you know, replacing the pieces of his body. Um, And, like, one of the, uh, Orrin Hatch, who is a disgusting garbage piece of shit for all sorts of reasons other than this question, um, but asked, like, but how do you make any money? And, like, Mark, like, Zuckerberg responds, you know, saying, like, well, we run ads, Senator. And it's, like, that's such a microcosm of, like, the macro problem, which is that we are, these are nation states that have... Uh, uh, monetized like some of our worst tendencies, created addictive psychological feedback loops in which there's no democratic process to, to change them in twofold. One, because they are powerful corporations who are protected by the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Like there, there's, 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 there's shade on both sides. Um, but are, the people in power are old, tend to be white, have no idea what these services do, and are in no position to actually enact Meaningful change to try and curb some of these issues like consequences could be laid out for the the lack of foresight or the or The the feigned ignorance from these companies, but there there is no there's reason to despair because What are you supposed to do and then compounding that the best possible way to get your message out is using the fucking platforms yep. <laughs> Is tweeting at Jack or whatever to be like this is fucking bad Like that is a, a horrifying loop to be stuck in um and I, man, I just, well, the, the, all this stuff, scares, there are lots of reasons I'm scared for the future of my child, but this shit scares the hell out of me. Cause like I know how hard it can be to, to be in school. I was lucky that it, it wasn't as rough for me as I know it was for so many other people, but it can be, and it's just the, the ease at which you can ruin lives now. And the, and the way that social, social identities are important growing up. And now that we've latched these to digital platforms in which, all sorts of harassment and and malignment can happen at the drop of a hat. Like just, it's so easy to imagine how you can be ostracized for things that are wildly outside of your control. Because the gang mentality when you're young is like so primal. Like you want to be part of the popular tribe, and just this it just scares the shit out of me. Like I used to be happy that I missed the boat on dating online because that sounds like it's a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it's never been easier to hook up, but it's never been harder to actually get in a relationship is like my, my takeaway from all my friends that do it. But then now since I've had a kid and I started thinking more, you know, logical conclusions to all this stuff on how it affects, you know, really, really young people, it's just, it's terrifying. It doesn't, I don't see where, I don't see where this gets better. I only see where this gets worse and, and more personalized and more, and more targeted. It's just, I, I don't know where we come out on the other side of this stuff.
2: Yeah. How do we evolve? <laughs> How do we evolve from this and deal with it i
0: so i I guess for me
1: like I tend to look at this stuff as <laughs> i like I like to think we can evolve and like norms can change, so we've somehow adapted and psychologically accommodate uh the information age the the internet. Uh but I also think there's just a strong case to be made like in terms of things you can advocate now and like push politicians to do like there's a strong antitrust case against like what Facebook has turned mm-hmm. into yeah. right like Facebook acquired Instagram back in twenty twelve uh it was it was a somewhat controversial acquisition back then uh because there already were sort of antitrust uh concerns they around own that. whatsapp since then,
0: yeah.
2: Yep. Exactly. WhatsApp is like
0: the produ- People don't really think about WhatsApp because it's not very popular in the U.S., but it is like the predominant Huge. communication platform internationally. Like yep. Facebook, like their tentacles are just fucking everywhere. And yeah, at the very least, if you were to split those companies apart, that would be would it solve all this? No, but would it like create more accountability because it's spread across distributed platforms? Like yes, like that's those are meaningful steps in the right direction. Um, so we'll see, you know, I, I, am curious, you know, we got the midterms coming up. 2020 is coming up. We we're already watching potential candidates really fuck up their opening gambits into becoming 2020 candidates, <laughs> which is not my waypoint, but I thought about it for <laughs> a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how things like this, like, I, I think there is going to be a strong in the democratic primary, a strong anti-corporate, uh, push. And I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe this will become one of the legs of that anti-corporate push is to uh, to think through stuff like this and to think about these questions because they are going to be only more predominant and uh, impactful in the years ahead. And so, if we're if we're gonna start busting up companies, you know, I, I I think starting with the social networks in Silicon Valley is a is a hell of a place to start.
2: Yeah, I agree. I I also want to know a little bit more about. <laughs> Like if you're a parent and your child is experiencing bullying or if you are just a person in the world and you're experiencing this sort of harassment like if are there good resources for people do we even have that at this point are there
0: not from uh teachers that are in my life no wow.
2: <laughs> Like yeah.
0: like think think of how on un- think of how undervalued and how underfunded uh, teachers are in the basic stuff and then try to imagine what the resources are for things like social networks. There there have been there have been different ways I've heard over the years. Like it used to be the case that um and this is community by community, district by district, school by school, but like and I think this might have been tried legally and I'm not sure how it shook out, but that like if you like lots of schools have internal wireless now. Mm-hmm. And so it's like if harassment occurs on the school's wireless, then it is like basically what schools are grappling with is like once harassment occurs on a social media platform, yes that, that occurred in the hallway. But it didn't occur in the hallway. And so different schools have tried to approach that where if they get alerted to uh, a form of harassment or bullying or abuse, if you were on the school's Wi-Fi, that is then school, like, under school jurisdiction. And so there are versions of that. But um, it's so early days. And it's already so bad. Um, And and my guess is you're only getting thoughtfulness like that in schools that are, like, extremely well-funded that have the extra money to even consider it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But you know,
1: uh, speaking of things for, that happened back in 2012 that are surprisingly impactful today, <laughs> uh, so this last wow. week of all things, and I I don't fully know why or how. Like, so okay, I still have a Netflix DVD queue uh, because. Wait, h- hold on, hold on. D- what you're one of like those problems? And so I love Blu-rays like, too if a movie if i really want to see a movie like like the right way right like if i really give a shit about like okay. shot composition and just what that movie is going to look uh-huh. like i'm going to try to get it on blu-ray through netflix uh so okay. that you don't get like cuz you can see the places like where a stream is compressing right like in
0: dark like Oh, fuzzy especially netflix like iTunes is pretty good but yeah like the yeah netflix and and and, and hulu yeah if you're Those blacks, if you want those to look right, you're going to want that on a disc.
1: So I still have this uh, huge DVD queue. And because it's like serious cinema, I go through it very slowly because it's entirely (laughs) aspirational. Oh, Can you right. even
0: manage this on the app or do you have to do this on the website? You gotta do it on
1: the website, man. You gotta like it's <laughs> oh, still good. like
0: it's it's a, it's a separate subscription, right? It, it's not like all bundled it, together. Like you It pay basically
1: for it. is, but yeah, it's done now. It's DVD.com, I think is is how they run it. <laughs> oh, uh because there was God. that entire Quickster debacle ages ago. <laughs> yes, 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 uh, yes, yes, yes. Shout oh, out to
0: Chris.
1: Uh Anyway, though, so Sorry, this thing anyway, has just been yeah. a hot, like hanging out on my uh, DVD queue for ages. Uh, so, Looper is a 2012 movie from Ryan Johnson, and uh, obviously, Ryan Johnson notable now for uh, being a major director of the Star Wars films. So I think he's booked for three more. And that was
0: that was before he did. That was before the Breaking Bad finale, right? Because or the he did the. Uh, Penultimate episode, not the yeah, film, yeah. But it was a couple of years he, uh, before I think he did as a Twenty
2: fourteen,
0: yes, yeah, which is oh, it's such a mm, amazing episode of television. Uh,
1: so. The interesting thing about Looper is I had, I had to remember, because I saw it ages ago, like on a red-eye flight back to Boston from like LA or San Francisco.
2: It's actually kind of perfect, to be honest, but yeah.
1: Yeah, and it didn't make too much of an impression on me, uh, because at that point what I was really expecting was a high-concept sci-fi movie in a lot of ways, because like the conceit of this movie is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays what's called a Looper which is basically a time-traveling hitman. Uh, Except the hitman doesn't time travel. You just send people you want killed back in time to where the looper is standing there with a shitty little shotgun. The looper kills whoever you want killed in the past, stashes the body. As far as the past is concerned, the murder hasn't happened because this guy doesn't exist yet. So who gives a shit? And that's kind of the conceit of the movie. Um, And he, every looper eventually to sort of tie off the knot, uh, eventually will execute themselves. Uh, They're their older, their older versions. So you close your loop and then you get 30 years to go spend your criminal fortune. And then someday they come collect you and send you back in time to shoot yourself. Um, it sounds harder to follow than it, than it really is. It, it makes perfect sense in the movie. But when I first saw that movie, I really thought that the movie was about like time travel. In a lot of ways, it was about this whole world they built, where like in the future, criminals are the only ones who control time travel, and they use it to sort of manipulate the past, mostly to dump bodies. Um, and I think what what dawned on me this time as I watched it is the degree to which it's yet another Ryan Johnson crime movie, more than it's a sci fi <laughs> movie. Uh, like it reminded me a lot. Like when I first saw Looper, I was like. Boy, I don't see how the guy who made Brick, which is a Joseph Gordon Levitt uh like noir murder mystery that is set entirely in a high school and everyone is a high school student, but everyone is also like a cop, a nightclub owner, uh, you know, private eye. Um I didn't understand like how Looper was was from the same director, but the second time watching it, I was really struck by like just the ways it really reminded me of like an Elmore Leonard movie. Uh, it huh. it really is. It, it's much more of a darkly funny movie uh, about criminals than it is a sci-fi movie. I think. Um, at least that was that was my sort of read on it. it really, sort of caught me off guard how much I, how much I enjoyed it this time.
2: I uh, I did not do a refresh watch. I, I would have. I promise, if I wasn't uh, obsessed with my own waypoint. Uh, but I did watch it maybe two years ago or so so I did relatively fresh at least fresher than yeah some some of the stuff we talk about here and I remember uh, liking it as a movie but not fully enjoying it actually it was one of those for me like I appreciated it and I appreciated what it was doing and where it was working on on sort of various levels like it does have a pretty classic time travel structure and a pretty classic time travel kind of ending like oh okay It's obviously all about closing the loop. It's all about sort of uh, preventing this monster from being created or being created sort of completely, right? I'm remembering that correctly. Yes? Okay. Uh, And on that level, I found it somewhat rote, I suppose. But on that other level, on that sort of aesthetic level that you're talking about, I do find it a fascinating movie. I do like the sort of elements of sci-fi and also... Almost like a noirish Western vibe uh, to a lot of it, especially a lot of the shots. Obviously, in the house and the sort of the fields His apartment. and sort of the the apartment. Yeah, a lot of the color usage and a lot of the sort of the way things are framed is very, very, very interesting. Uh, so I, I, you know, clearly do need a a, a secondary sort of refresh watch, but. I think it does work on several levels, but I think I went in again with that expectation of like, this is going to be a sci-fi ass sci-fi movie and didn't get that. And was, was somewhat disappointed sort of at the time a couple of years ago, but I am tempted. I am very tempted uh, to appreciate it more on this sort of aesthetic level.
0: Well, I remember this movie. I remember liking it, but I remember watching it. Unfortunately, like there's like a, like a certain window you can watch, like a, uh, a, a, deeply praised like the the response to this movie initially was hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. Like was yeah. L- one of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. You know, Ryan Johnson's gonna go on to be blah blah blah. I mean he very, very well be I, I think Ryan Johnson's a, a terrific filmmaker um and I'm excited to see the things he does in the future and the things he's done in the past I think have been terrific as well. But this was like my first real expo- I had heard of Brick, had not seen it. Um still haven't seen it for whatever reason. That's like certainly on my list of movies I need to like rectify. Brick yeah, um, is genius. But yeah, that yeah, that's what I've heard. It's like remains probably his best work, um, um, so far. Um, and but the, the reaction to Looper, and especially as someone like everyone in this group, uh, everyone at White Point, probably like you know deep into an appreciation of of science fiction, especially like sort of like high concept science fiction. Um, I liked it, but I remember thinking like, oh, okay, uh, like yeah, that was good. And I wonder now if it's been long enough. That like so much of that has faded that you can go back to just appreciating what it is as opposed to what you think it's supposed to be. And like that's such a difficult thing, especially – I find this so much more challenging these days given just how much – frankly, like great media we are exposed to on all sorts of different formats that it's just so much harder to find yourself – for lack of a better word, like in the right loop, like in the, in, that fr- in that bubble where it's like you can critically appreciate it because you've seen people being like, hey, this is something you would enjoy. But without that bubble getting like so expansive that your expectations become like, you end up having an opposite reaction because of, of what you were, like, the, you know, Danielle, you talked about A Quiet Place. Like, I think that happened to that movie. Yeah. Like, I was encouraging <laughs> people, you need to go see it now because like I saw it opening night and I was like, people are going to, Flip for this movie in a way that is going to be disproportionate to how good it is. It's like I liked this movie a lot, especially on like a thriller level, on a, on a scare level. But oh no, like people haven't seen a movie like this in a while, done this well and effectively. Like you need to go see it now before you're before you think it's one of the greatest movies of all time, yep. which it is not. <laughs> um, and I think I, I'm curious to revisit Looper now because it has none of that baggage. I think it, is, it just settled into being like. A good movie, uh, uh, maybe a slightly above average Ryan Johnson movie, because of like his his pedigree and the other things he's done, especially in television since then. Um, but I was just in a weird space where I, I don't think I saw it in the theater. I saw it when it came out to rent, and I was I probably got it through a DVD queue <laughs> back when <laughs> most people had DVD queues. DVD um,
2: Okay.
0: <laughs> no, it's just it's just Netflix Then I'd have to go to a separate I website. I ordered two right. new DVDs then. today. <gasps>
1: wow. <laughs> Which movies? Uh, Terrence Malick's *The Thin Red Line* and *My Man God Okay, which is Loomis. All right. Okay. Um, maybe not Loomis. Um, but yeah, I don't. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think you're exactly right, Danielle. Like the movie is like it is about can you like stop this like criminal mastermind uh, future Moriarty from like rising to control all crime and kill a whole like shitload of people the movie is about that it culminates in like the decision to figure out a desperate way to tie off the chain of events that leads to the creation of this monster and yet watching it the second time i guess because i already knew that I was able to just sort of set that aside. That's not the interesting part of the movie. But the the, the interesting movie that's here is a harder one to describe and sell, sell to people, and to make them see when they're still trying to figure out what the ultimate arc of the story is going to be. Like I think this is one of those movies that like plot serves poorly in some ways. Like I think I wonder if Looper's a thing now. And it
0: presents as a puzzle box, right? Like it presents as a puzzle box. So we're engineered as a viewer. You know, in a post like J.J. Abrams World, like there is a specific way that, that films are and media can be built where it's like, oh, this is why this is how I'm supposed to watch this. I'm trying to see if I can get ahead of the movie to figure out where it's going. And it seems like Rob, what you're suggesting is actually like once you've got the spoilers out of the way, you can actually focus on the movie that's there. Yeah,
1: like there's this scene, because uh, somebody was talking to me about how the film doesn't make sense. Like the time travel paradoxes are completely unresolved. But like literally there's a scene where Bruce Willis Says straight up to his younger self, um, you know, don't think about the time travel shit. It just it just messes with your head. It's not worth it. Uh, you're not going to get any good, clear answers. Just just go with it.
2: The Austin Powers moment that he has, yeah, yeah, and I that.
1: <laughs> and I think that actually is like I think that's as close as Ryan Johnson gets to like coming out from behind the curtain in this movie and just being like, look, like this this movie operates with this conceit. It's not really about this, though. It's about... Um, I think it's about how disappointing in small time the future was already starting to feel back in 2012 and where how disappointing in small time it appeared to be on a trajectory to becoming, right? So, like, this is a movie where... Um, early on they established, like, telekinesis exists. 10% of the population have telekinetic, like, psychic powers. They're useless. All they can do is, like, levitate like quarters that's it like you can only like you, like you can only lift like tiny lightweight things and you can't even really move them you can just like make them levitate like in your hand that's, that's... and it doesn't even
2: get the guy dates isn't that the whole joke that like oh yeah it doesn't really impress girls right nobody anymore. likes like, it oh. uh
1: yeah emily Blunt's <laughs> character talks about how what she would do is uh she wouldn't tell people she was telekinetic and what she'd do is fuck with them by, like, holding their quarters down, they're trying to, like, show off what they could do. Um, <laughs> but it's also a movie where, uh, like, even though the movie's sort of built around this idea of a criminal mastermind, what the way it kind of achieves this is, it no wonder a criminal mastermind can, like, take off and succeed in this world. Because most of the criminals you meet are, like fucking incompetent douchebags. Like all of them, <laughs> yeah. like you know the loopers. Uh oh, they're these like picked hitmen and all that. But they're not. Like they're guys who stand there waiting for a body to show up, they shoot it and then they like throw it down a well. That's their that's their thing. The gun they have literally can't shoot for more than like a few yards. It's it's useless. <laughs> um the guy good Jeff Daniels performance um Jeff Daniels, like really, if you need somebody to be sort of a boomer asshole uh, in in your movie who's like sort of snide and arrogant, and uh, you know, no way less smart than he thinks he is, um, you get Jeff Daniels. But he's like this. Oh, newsroom. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Yeah,
1: newsroom wasn't in on the, in on the joke, uh, unlike unlike Looper or uh, The Martian, but. This movie, like, he's the mob boss of the city. He's been sent from the future. But he was sent from the future just because they needed somebody to go back in time and run these fucking loopers. And so he's basically this cast off who's, like, no, no use to the mob, like, in the future. So who do you send back to basically babysit a bunch of yokel fuck-ups? Uh, well, it's Jeff Daniels. And he gets bored and he takes over the city and becomes a mob boss. Basically, because he knows a little bit about what's going to happen, because he's from the future, and uh, he enforces his will through the Gatmen, uh, who those the skilled killers, they're the gunmen, uh, but they're all they're all idiots too, and I, it's it's yeah. a weird thing the degree to which this movie is all about like everyone in this movie is fronting, it's all self presentation, it's all style, it's all, and this is what makes me think like that it's a really good elmore leonard movie and and also a ryan johnson like genre subversion it's a crime movie where everyone is like obsessed with the idea of being criminals but they're all fucking bad at it they're all fucking <laughs> bad at it and the thing that's like the thing that sets all this in motion is they're so bad at it that they accidentally fuck up the wrong person's life and in the future that person comes and like ruins theirs that's kind of
0: well, and it's and it's not so uh, on the nose in like a Fargo sort of way, right? Where you have like a bunch of people want to be criminals or kind cr- of criminal fuck ups. Who the point of it on its face, especially like in the, I mean, true in the movie and true in the TV series, but like it's meant to be overtly comedic, like how bumbling these people are and what they get themselves into. Whereas, it, you know, Looper is a yeah. little more subtle about it, or it's it's more you're reading into that as a second or third reading of the film, as opposed to a Fargo where it's like, <laughs> like can you believe this mm-hmm. shit? Um, like, it feels like Fargo is chuckling with you. Whereas Looper, you kind of need to read between the lines a little bit on, on what its characters are. In our yeah.
1: Film. I think Fargo, like, like Fargo is this entirely postmodern, like, <laughs> look at, look at how dumb everyone is and selfish and banal. Um, whereas again, like the Elmore Leonard thing is criminals are often, you know, like people are career criminals who like choose, like my job is going to be a stick up man. That person is probably in most cases not going to be a scholar. Uh, That person is not going to have the best like impulse control. That's sort of the Elmore Leonard thesis is like a lot of people get in trouble with the law. They're not crooks. Crooks are, you know, basic, like career crooks in like the Leonard verse. most of them are pretty bad at their jobs. And, you know, they're going to end up uh, shooting each other uh getting arrested or getting killed by killed killed, killed by the police um, and what makes those universes kind of cool is that there's always that chance there's a few people who know what they're about in that world, and like seeing how the few people who have a that modicum of self awareness like interact with that world uh, and I think looper kind of operates in that same tradition uh, so yeah. Yeah, really enjoyable movie. Uh, I I would say, like, worth revisiting if you remember it mostly as kind of a disappointing, uh, you know, sci-fi movie. And so, speaking of things that also might be surprisingly good, uh, we're going to take a little break here, and you're going to hear an ad.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite All right, we're back.
2: (laughs) Are we? We sure are. I'm so glad.
0: (laughs) My favorite is getting updates on... Okay, you know, Twitter's a garbage fire, but what is it useful for? Hearing the responses from people about these ads, like a a guy in the UK being like, every time Rob sets me up for an ad, I don't get an ad, and it makes me so excited because it means you you cut to a break and then come back from it immediately. And it's just... (laughs) Mm. Ah, thank you, algorithm. All praise, the algorithm. (sighs) Uh, All right, so our last
1: waypoint, uh, I want you guys to get into, but then I'm going to have a lot of questions about, basically, I need you you all to explain horror to me. Uh, Because in the Uh last month, I've sort of been drinking from the fire hose. (laughs) But, like, this next (laughs) waypoint is where I started to get really frustrated. Because I started to be Uh like, is this horror? Like, is this... Is this it? Like, is this, is this what it's always been? Or is this like a subversion of the genre? Like, is this a, a, a subversion or complication of the genre in a new format? I don't know because I haven't seen any of the foundational texts. I haven't seen An Exorcist. I haven't seen The Shining. I haven't seen Halloween. Like, I just don't have, like, the context. And so... This
2: is what we should stream this week. Is Rob watching all these horror No, movies?
1: because that would be humiliating. That would be humiliating. Oh. Like, just like the part where I'm just like, sort of like grabbing you by your arm and be like, I need to know right now. Is this kid going to make it or not?
2: That's great TV, Rob. Yeah. Come on.
1: Uh, people don't need to see that. Anyway, uh, Danielle, this is, this is your waypoint for the week. You want to take us into uh, The Haunting of Hill House.
2: Yes, I'll take you in. Although I I need to take a deep breath as well, because watching this show is like processing trauma. That's how good it is and how intense it is. So I went into this zero expectations. I had seen a few tweets here and there. It's, you know, a couple of things here and there, but I was like, oh, they're remaking that again. There are so many remakes of this, the basic property, the haunting or the haunting of Hill House or the general idea being there's a haunted house and people go there and it's scary and bad things happen there are ghosts. There was a n- horrible 90s adaptation of this that I only remember because I think it was Catherine Zeta-Jones plays a, oh, plays a bisexual right. woman. And at 15, I was like, whoa, that's a thing. Interesting. I there's also Liam Neeson in that movie. That movie. There's a giant yes. hand. It's a whole thing. Uh, I, I'm not going to recommend that particular adaptation, however, it just, that was, like, what I was going into it thinking about. There's an older movie with the same name. Uh, yeah, from
0: 1968, I yes. think it's with uh, uh, Vincent Price. Yeah. It's, like, one of his, like, more famous towards the end of when he was, I mean, he continued to be a character actor. Yeah. But, like, when Vincent Price was, like, a home, you know, a household name, especially in genre films. Yeah. Um, that, that one did, I watched it last October. Because okay. my wife, like, had such fond memories about it. If you are only coming at it with like contemporary understandings of horror, it's slow in a way that may be frustrating, but it's probably interesting for historical context of just how they built tension and and portrayed it in cinema. You know, yeah, I haven't plus seen it in a very
2: long time, so I a lot of it has a little bit not fresh in my yeah, mind. The original, sure. you know, I think that was the original. I don't think there was a, a previous one, but yeah. So the '60s one, the '90s one, and then this TV show. I was like, oh, they remade it again. All right, cool. However. Watched the first episode on a whim, and I was clutching my dog. Like, I, I was cuddling him. I usually cuddle with him. I was clutching him because of how effective it was. So what it is at, a, at its core is uh, a really a mishmash of very, very good, genuinely, like, family drama or prestige drama about a family and uh, domestic trauma and living through trauma and how people process trauma. And also a genuinely scary and effective horror show. Uh, it goes through sort of two timelines, one in the late 80s and one in the current day, following a family. So they move into this house in the 80s. Their whole shtick is they, they, they flip houses. They go to a house, they fix it up, they sell it for millions of dollars or whatever, whatever, a massive price. They go to this horrible haunted house big creepy it looks gothic it looks like what you think of when you think of a haunted house lots of rooms lots of creepy stuff there's ghosts everywhere there's statuary there's apparitions statuary yes exactly uh and you get to know the characters kind of bit by bit episode by episode now as patrick has suggested i've gone through the first three episodes at this point i will continue watching it however it is it's it's a lot so sorry. Uh, finishing the setup, uh, it goes through these sort of two timelines. There are five children in the family, and there's two parents, um, and it goes through both timelines of the you know back then, which is sometime in the '80s. It's not like said at this point, but they're like one of the, the little boy has like a Ninja Turtles pillow, so it's got to be like late '80s, generally around there. Yep. Yeah. Um, and sort of their adult selves, and uh, sort of how they have grown up, how they have dealt with their trauma or not dealt with their trauma, and what they're doing now, and there's a lot of ghosts. So the thing I want to say, like, top line about it uh, is that it's really, really effectively shot. And actually, the editing is amazing. And you don't always notice the editing uh, in a in a great movie or a great TV show. Even if, even if you went to grad school for editing like me, you don't always, like, sit there and think, like, oh, this was a great cut. But it, it does beautiful things with cross-cutting, sort of one timeline to the next timeline very seamlessly. They do a ton of form cuts, which is just, like, oh, you know, this one's eating an apple in this scene and then somebody's eating an apple in the next scene, stuff like that. Like, just it just cuts on, on that sort of action really, really effectively and really nicely. There's a lot of great motifs. I've also heard, although I haven't necessarily noticed this yet, that there are, like, secret ghosts in a lot of shots.
0: I will send you a link.
2: Oh, please do, because I, I... Oh, my God, that would be very okay, fun. Okay, but they're to, cheating yeah, they a little <laughs> bit, right?
1: Because they underlight that house so aggressively that, like, you anything yes, could be... You, a, oh, can yeah.
0: see... Yeah, Yeah, when I when I when I send you the links, uh, 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 like there's no way for you like it's meant to be an Easter egg in the like someone on YouTube goes frame by frame through a shot to find like a head poking out of a you know a a dark frame, but it but it it is a movie that I or a a show that as Danielle is, is mentioning like that stuff is shows the sort of like uh the level of attention to detail that is both in the shot composition the easter eggs for people that want to like go through and find that stuff like indicate parts of the history of the house and the people that have found themselves stuck there for whatever reason like the, yeah. all those little touches like are imbued all over different parts of the show
2: yeah and and one thing it does so effectively that i think is beautiful and it's sort of i don't think if this is a subversion of the genre rather than a, a completely different lens uh on the genre like it is It is shot with that attention to detail and edited and with that attention to detail and the performances are incredible. So it really does feel like a, a genuinely lovingly rendered drama with these characters that are so rich and so complex and the way they've dealt with the things that have happened to them in their lives are so interesting and realistic and layered and beautiful that it feels like... As opposed to some horror movies, which I still love, you have a bunch of archetypes running around. Like in the couple of Purge movies that we've looked at thus far, it's it's you know largely archetypes of people, or, or maybe not all the way stereotypes, but you know. By the time this you get type to of election person, year, this it sure type of as person is a bunch of. Is it <laughs> all right? Well, running that, around. Yeah, kind of. Yes, this feels like people. This feels like people who have realistically uh, dealt with a lot of horrible shit and are trying to get through the day, and they are trying to get through some even more horrible shit and supernatural shit, or preternatural, as one of the characters prefers. Steve, the sort of oldest boy, prefers preternatural to uh, supernatural.
0: Good term. I like it.
2: Yeah, it's it's very, very good and interesting. It's working on a lot of levels, textually and subtextually. I I think there are a lot of things going on with the characters and their relationships that are beautiful and subtle, and, man, it... it gets me like that's the other thing i am watching this and i'm able to appreciate the craft of it and i'm able to appreciate the writing and how it's working on all these levels and it's also like i don't actually i'm a very emotional person but i don't actually cry very much when i watch things i am usually like i'm in it i'm enjoying it but i am on that other sort of level where i'm like oh man what a great edit you know i'm kind of always doing that this second episode uh focuses on shirley uh who is i think she's the oldest girl In the family and she is a mortician and the way she has processed all the trauma in her life from the ghosts that haunted her literally as a kid to the ghosts that haunt her now both literally and metaphorically uh the business isn't doing great because she's so kind to people she gives people a break on on funerals and she she goes overboard with making people look beautiful at a funeral and does things like talks to the children if they're having trouble with dealing with the death in the family. Because she needs to care. She is a caregiver. She is the kind of person who can only process things if she's taking care of other people. Which, that got me right there. There is also, and this is where I'm going to say content warning, like, a thousand percent for this episode. There are dead kittens in this episode. And it almost made me, like, sob. And my little cat was, like, right in front of me, like she comforts me when I get upset, and she was like, coming up to me and like, being very cute while I was watching this episode, and it was like, holy Jesus God. There is a scene where the parents are discussing how they handled uh, Shirley sort of dealing with the death of a pet. And... It's a beautiful scene and a subtle scene because the mother in this in this world is sensitive to things like the supernatural. All the girls are sensitive to the supernatural. And one of the boys is certainly as well. And the way she kind of talks about how she fucked up, like she she doesn't feel like she handled it well. She doesn't feel like she handled this discussion with her child well. And the father is kind of like, oh, I wish I was more of a part of this. I wish I you know, could have given a little bit more advice on this or this was more, you know, we made this decision in lockstep. It was this really honest and beautiful discussion about how they dealt with something and they felt like it dealt with it poorly. That kind of really endeared me to these people as people who care about their children, uh, who want to do a good job and and talk about it and communicate about that. That sort of thing you don't see in every horror movie. You don't see parents discussing how they dealt with, like, a really, really sensitive issue with their child in the midst of, oh, oh, and also in two seconds you might get a giant jump scare because something's going to come out of something's mouth or something will become a ghost or something like don't that. Don't
0: go in a dumbwaiter.
2: Don't go in the dumbwaiter. <laughs> Holy Jesus. So, yeah, that sorry, idea, in the third episode out. that I want to shout out uh, is the character of Theodora is, is sort of um, – the most uh, focused upon. She's a queer woman who is a child psychologist who, where she's processed her trauma is to help children. And she has a sort of sixth sense uh, in a way. She is able to kind of intuit people's feelings and intuit things in the environment. Uh, and that's used instead of in a cheesy way where I think a lot of lesser movies or TV shows might might just be like, oh, she can feel somebody's feeling. You know, she's doing the Deanna Troy of like, Captain, I sense fear. I sense they're not telling the truth. She's able to actually use this power uh, in a way that she feels is both good and also compromised because she also knows she lives in a, in a world of horrible systems and corrupt systems, and she's doing her best. But she's so fucking smart, and she is so damaged, and she is dealing with it the best she can. So, my God, I, I am absolutely floored uh, by this show, on the, both the craft level and on the just sort of gut level emotional I am both scared to death while I'm watching this and also like on the edge of crying every five minutes because of how well drawn these characters are, of how real their, their pain feels in a lot of ways and about how real like their processing of trauma feels. It feels like going through EMDR is what this show feels like, like going through that with a therapist or something like the shit you see in that feels very close to kind of what the experience of watching this show is like. So yeah, I'm sorry. You have a lot of questions. I went on for no. a little while there.
0: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just briefly. I'll just echo, uh, uh, you know, my uh, sort of crossboard board praise for the show. It comes from uh, writer director Mike Flanagan, who has done a lot of really interesting uh, horror genre work in the last five years or so. He um, uh, he's sort of like uh, uh, who's the uh, the folks who got uh, fired off of uh, Solo the. Um, Oh. Uh they did the Lego movie. Shoot, why am I forgetting that those the, that duo? Anyway, they you know they've done like twenty one jump street, they did the Lego movie. They, they had a way of like going into properties that they had no right to and turning them into something that was interesting and, and and at times thoughtful um and and enjoyable. And so like Mike Flanagan has done this a number of times. Like uh the original Ouija film is complete garbage. It is it is unbelievable trash. And they made a second movie, Ouija two, which like who would want to make that movie? Mike Flanagan would want to make that movie. And one and of the actresses was
2: actually in that, I think. I think yes, Kate Siegel, yes. who plays Theodora, was actually in that as well. So it's, yeah. Correct. Continuity. And she
0: is the centerpiece of that film. Yeah. Like he is um, someone that a lot of his work focuses on kids. He works really well with children and finds ways to make them fully fleshed out characters as opposed to a lot of horror films that just take children and use them as, well, kids don't know what they're doing. So they're just going to like go into that basement so a ghost can pop out. Um, and certainly stuff like that happens because we're, it's a horror film. But like it's always treated very, as though the kids are, are people too, and so you know, *Ouija* two is a, it was a underrated film. I'm not gonna say it's an all time classic, but it's a good movie. Uh, uh, *Gerald's Game*, which is one of Stephen King's all time terrible books, um, <laughs> somehow turns that into something interesting uh, as well. Um, in fact, the the mother of uh, 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 in the past is the main character of, of, oh, cool. of Gerald's Game. Gugino he's also adapting...
2: Jugino, I think? Jugino? Sure.
0: I do not... I'm not familiar with the actress's name, so you're <laughs> going to be closer than I am. Um, he's also adapting Dr. Sleep. Again, famously, one of Stephen King's worst modern novels. <laughs> and I'm confident he'll turn that into something interesting. Which is all to say, like uh, this, if you like Stephen King stories, I, I that's another angle I would look at this uh, from. Like, Stephen King, uh, his... His, the reason his stories are often terrifying have left to do with, like, the high concept or the jump scares as much as that stuff is building on strong character work, right? And so it's like Stephen King books work because you believe in the setting in the characters. The settings become characters. The people are believable. Um, the reason his endings are so disappointing is because he builds up things in such a credible way that you're just so frustrated that he doesn't know how to finish them out. And uh, Haunting of Hill House is feels like mike flanagan's way of doing a television like castle rock i think is okay there's a stephen king tv series out there on hulu honeyman house blows it out of the water like because it it better understands what is actually interesting about stephen king as an author when he had had his best when you read a book like it um or the stand um or even pet cemetery um so uh yeah, I I am really enjoying it. You should uh, be forewarned Danielle, like if you're already sobbing, I'm not, I'm not past the third episode, but I have heard episode 5 is a lot. Yeah. And so you might just want to like 5 and 4 is supposed to be very scary. 5 is apparently like emotional train wreck. Uh and 6 might be the same way. So just like if you're already yeah. <laughs> like, like waterworking, like you might just want to be in a certain place when you like start turning the corner on, the, on these episodes. Yeah. Um so yeah, and it's also this feels like a more ground grounded version of crimson peak which is also like okay. a gothic melodrama yeah. um haunting of Hill House* is a melodrama um gothic horror tends to be melodramatic um and this feels a little more grounded as much as like a horror piece of fiction is um and, and the last thing i'll say is that it lines up with a type of uh i'm a big fan of like friday night lights parenthood like sappy family dramas are something that like have always been just like whatever. It's a, it's an itch. I like to scratch. I've put off watching this. This is us show. Cause I've heard it scratches a similar itch, but is like not nearly as good as parenthood or Friday night lights was. And this show operates on that level for me where it's like, it's a credible, interesting family drama that just so happens to have horror elements. And most horror tends to be the inverse in which it's, horror ele- it's like horror is the centerpiece and then there just happen to be characters in a plot so they can get to the other stuff. Um but this feels like the horror is a wrapper. The horror is like it's it's not just thematic trapping, but the horror is like a it's being used effectively around the characters as opposed to the characters being a justification for like whatever horror story you wanted to tell. So anyway I guess that we've left our cards on the table. <laughs> Rob, have we answered anything? Where are you at? What was your reaction to this? Because it sounds like you were a little more, if not muted, confused on, on what to no, take No, I away. think
1: I like, only watched the first episode, so I haven't really gotten into the meat of the show in, in a lot of ways.
0: The first, I'll say the first three, I feel like gives you uh, an arc. Yeah. And that if you watch the three and it doesn't do anything for you, from what I understand, nothing is going to change but going if, forward. It's only going to be more like I, I
1: like, I liked the first episode. Uh, I think for me, I think what did surprise me was the degree to which my understanding is like all horror movies and suspense movies for the most part operate up to some degree on the level of metaphor, right? Like the monster is not just the monster. The monster is also standing in for other things. You know, the conceit is, uh, can, can be, uh, analogized to a, a number of different, uh, different things that people experience or, or that are work in the world. I was surprised. So I was thinking of um, a different parenthood movie, the Ron Howard movie with um, uh, Steve Martin and Jason Robards right. from ages oh. and ages ago. But it reminded me of this, yeah. a similar thing where it's a like, multi-generational family drama in a lot of ways, trying to process like what happens when you all loved each other. At one point, you're sort of this ideal American family. And then flash forward 20 years – not everyone love like not everyone likes each other or you all love each other and you want to care about each other but like also you want to not have anything to do with each other uh, <laughs> like like the the problem yeah. of family members become estranged and sometimes for good reasons sometimes for petty ones but like what happens when there are people that like legitimately you don't want to ask the phone you know you should but you just you just don't you you just don't maybe this person needs your help but you're just t- you're tapped
0: out you have no more help to offer or you've done it so many times before that like yeah. part of the way without getting into spoilers of the plot beats of the, of this show is like your your hope is because it's a big family unit that well I won't answer but you know someone else mm-hmm. will answer and like they'll p- like I picked up the baton last time like hey it's it's someone else's fucking turn to to deal with this
1: and I think what confused me here a little bit is that, for me, this feels entirely... Like, like a rapper is a good way to put it. Like, this one does feel like, is this a decent representation of what horror like what classic horror tends to be because on the one hand it's such a classic form we've got we we bought a haunted fucking house and it's fucking cursed, and (laughs) terrible things happen we're all we're all traumatized and horrified by by what we've seen but another level this is a story about like this could just as easily like if you say if you just embrace the metaphor and you say like actually nothing's haunted there are no monsters this is just a family haunted by loss and uh You know, mental illness. uh, You know, within the family and on the part of a parent, um, does this show substantially change? And I'm not sure it does, because it is such a family drama, like down to its, you know, down to its toes. That I'm sort of sitting here, like a little bit not weirded out. That's 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 the wrong way to put it. But even though there's all these jump scares, there's a part of me that's watching it, and I'm like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Monster. Possession. Scary thing dancing <laughs> through the halls. Okay, what's going on with Steven? Like, is he just an asshole, or is he, like, right. working through some stuff, and he's just processing it badly? Like, is he really this insensitive, or is he just, like, relate to you badly? Like, that's the weird thing. It's just is, Alan Wake. Yeah, is, so, like, I, where I've come down with this movie is, like, when I watch, when I, when I watch this show, practically all I see is the metaphor. And, like, the horror of it begins to disappear for me entirely because, like, pr- primarily it's about, you know, these daughters and sons uh, processing what the collective trauma they share.
2: Well, this uniquely kind of got to me, I think, because it speaks so directly to why I like horror. Like, I, I I've said before, I think it's the only honest genre or only completely fully honest genre of fiction in that every human being... Okay. I, I know it's maybe not a perfect argument, but it, it's, it speaks to me that every human being is afraid of death and afraid of loss and afraid of grief and has a very, very difficult time dealing with any of these things uh, on, a, on a real level, on a day to day level, because if you obsess about it all day, every day, you, you can't get through the day. You can't get through anything. You, these things become diseases. They become things that you can't uh, keep you from functioning. So horror kind of reminds you of that and gives you that catharsis, I think in this it's working on that it's working on both levels it's working on that metaphorical level but it's also working on that visceral level that gut reaction like yeah it it is that horrifying to have like a parent die or it is that horrifying to have a pet die it is that horrifying just be a flesh and blood being in this world that is going to die that lives with the knowledge that you will become diseased and fall apart and die one day that is utterly fucking horrific no matter how much we dress it up or how much we would like to pretend that our lives are normal in some fashion. Like, this is like family drama, family drama, ghost! And that works for me. It works for me so, yeah. so well, the, honestly. The mashup
0: works for me, too. Yeah. Like, I can see, like, I can see, wh- I, I totally see where, Rob, you're coming from, where, like, especially someone that's like a, ca- you know, maybe not an appreciator of horror, but just like a casual, like, dip in, dip out, like, you know, based on... You know where the winds are going, yeah. if someone or if someone recommends it, or if we're doing a, a rewatch podcast. But it's not necessarily something where you're like seeking it out in the way that I are like desperately looking for something like another like another hit of it. Like just I need something new. Like I've been I need to find some new way to get scared or or <laughs> like re- traumatized by some piece of horror. Um, and I do think part of part of why I love this show is bec- is like the the mashup isn't perfect, but I it so effectively pulls off both of them. That it just it it does work for me, right? So like I think you're right that you could take out all of the monster elements and it would be a potentially interesting like family drama all on its own. Like the characters are well realized enough separate from the ghosts and what goes bump in the night that y- there's a, there's a version of the show you could work out that you know you could you could see that that functioning. And then the the horror stuff I think is shot so effectively uh, that it works on its own. And so matching those things together is just like oh it's peanut butter and chocolate to me, baby. (laughs) Like I was like, I love cheesy, melodramatic family dramas. And then I love like horror. And also because it's very, uh, economical with the horror. Like it's, um, it's kind of in and out. It doesn't like when it, those moments come, you're at least this has been my is You're like, ah, shit. Okay, here we go. Whereas in most horror films, like that's what you're there for the whole time. Right. So, um, there are moments where they can like credibly creepy out or, or make tense, but it has to work so hard to get to those moments because that's what the whole 90 minutes is about. Whereas the Haunting of Little House like has whole stretches like 30 minutes of a show where it's just the family drama part, and then it's like cut to and you're like, Oh ah, sh- oh, shit, Flanagan, here we go. All right, okay. So- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get another splash of a drink. It's fine. I thought I was done, but I didn't know they were going to do this so, now. I, I, um, thing, I think one
1: thing that maybe does make this go on smoother is that um, I think if, if I was just watching the family drama version of this, I wouldn't. Because, like, it is the intensity that the horror gives it that makes it, I think, more relatable. Like, this reminds me a little bit of a show that Netflix ran a couple years ago, Bloodlines, which was also a very good uh, family drama mm. But it was all family drama. It was slow as hell, and I just fell off of it. Like the performances were good, the family dynamics were like sharply drawn and and thoughtful, but it was just missing something because there just weren't enough people coming through the door with guns,
0: basically, or there weren't enough like you know monsters like, <laughs> you know reaching out for you while you slept. Uh, the dad from Friday Night Lights being a badass just wasn't quite enough to uh, carry that show along. Yeah. I was the same way. I was but same.
1: Um, yeah, I think what what. What gets what gets me here a little bit is so in the first episode, like it opens on the most one of like all the children have had different outcomes in their lives, they're all different places, but like two of them have like never really overcome some of some of the issues they've been carrying since they were little kids. And those manifest in different ways. And it's too simple to reduce it down to like, oh, one of them's uh, you know, got a narcotics addiction because he's Torn up about his mom, but like clearly like one of these kids has become, uh, is, is struggling and losing, uh, to, to addiction. Uh, and uh, you know, another, another daughter, uh, is sort of still troubled by, uh, nightmares and like post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, stemming from stuff that happened in childhood. But the, the show opens on everyone's cells kind of being pinged by one of these siblings And how everyone doesn't really want to answer that phone, and that first episode ends with it's a horror beat, but it's a horror beat, but it's a horror beat built around what you always fear will happen if you don't pick up that phone. You know what I mean? Like it is horror beat that like, and that moment is so much more real than like just the literal like, oh, you didn't you didn't reach out to this person, and the the worst happened. Like now, how do you feel? transforming that into a horror moment in some ways i think makes it feel more real it, it sort of pierces through like the armor a little more effectively it becomes less of an intellectual like yeah that could happen and more of a yeah but how would it feel if that happened and yes. you right. clicked decline yes. earlier in the day
2: makes it, yeah, it, it
1: it takes an emotion and like turns it into yeah. a
0: physical object for you to
1: look at yeah, yeah. absolutely I'm also just not sure. Like, dude, it was a fucking grind. I was watching this at like nine thirty this morning, and I was just Uh like, "I need a fucking beer." I am like, I am freaking out here. I had the shades drawn and everything. That house sucks. That house sucks. I yeah, yeah.
2: I've been doing the thing that I haven't done since I was a teenager. I remember doing this in Stir of Echoes in two thousand. I was sixteen years old. Kevin
0: Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Classic.
2: Classic genuinely scary uh
0: mm-hmm. uh ghost oh, yeah. story
2: i am watching scenes in this in this show like with my hands over my eyes i am doing that thing and i am i seriously i love horror i live on horror i live on the shocks i live on the scares i enjoy them so much and that's how much this is getting to me i think Danielle, because I'm that so first invested. shot in the the first shot in the dumbbell thing with oh, ah. oh. That, ah. was a, that was a perfect one where I was just like, ah. oh, my God, I can't look. I have to look. Oh, my God, I can't look. I'm, like, squeezing my dog da- I'm, I'm watching this, like, again, <laughs> cuddling him. I'm, like, squeezing him, and he's just like, what is going on? And I'm like, don't look, Drake. Don't look. It's like
0: My wife oh. yells at me when I scream during football games oh. uh, uh, for, ang- for happy and sad reasons, because <laughs> um, usually we're watching that when my daughter's asleep. And so it always brings me great pleasure when I can turn the tables on her. And during this sequence in particular, oh. um, uh, w- with the dumb waiter, there is a specific shot, the one that, Danielle, you absolutely know which I'm talking about. It's yep. the first sort of reveal, yep. let's say. Oh, my God. And she just shrieked, like, like, as though she was auditioning for a horror film, like, hey, can you scream? Like, <laughs> you just, like, show us if you're capable of screaming. It is, like, just... In no way did you mute yourself. You just... It came <laughs> out in just, like, the loud... And I just... We had to pause. I was just like, "Cat," I was just like, "You yell at me all, so often to just keep my shit together during the football games, and like, what are you doing? It's nine o'clock at night. Now she's really sleeping, and you're screaming, and I was just, it brought that's me so hilarious. much joy." Yeah. But
1: that's the kind of remark. That's the kind of Schadenfreude that can come get, come back and haunt you later.
0: Oh. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's all true.
1: right, I think. Wow. Uh, that will that will do it for for this week's episode. What the where the hell did I put the outro notes? I've got too many fucking tabs open at this point. Uh, yes, yeah, so that'll do it for this episode of, of Waypoints. You can watch uh, the haunting of Hill House, based on Shirley
0: Jackson's book, uh, on Netflix. Although I should say, like, I because I've heard some people that are big fans of that original book. I have not. I have not read it myself. Uh, adaptation would. In the loosest possible terms, yeah. from what I understand about what the uh, that book is is about, this is more like used as a starting right. off point as opposed to adapting. Yeah. So just, uh, and I'd be curious for folks uh, that have uh, read the book like to chime in, like write into us and like let us know or hit us up on uh, the garbage fire that is Twitter because uh, I, I I have heard from fans that are big fans of that book who really dislike the directions this have gone, this the show went in. And I wonder how much that is tied to, you know, an appreciation of, of the original book itself. All
1: right. Yeah. Uh, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at Makes.bandcamp.com. And you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Patrick, where can people find you? Danielle. And Patrick Kloppick.
2: You can find me live tweeting my experience watching this show <laughs> at Danielle R.I.
1: You totally have left Drake behind at Hill House. You'd have been like, that's that's not Drake. But it's Pace! like, I think it is. And you're like, nope, I assure you it's not Drake. Car peels out.
2: The dogs were, weren't real. Yeah. There were no dogs. I never had a dog. What are you talking about? Uh, wash my hands.
1: Uh, <laughs> all right. That'll do it for Waypoints. Hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, we'll be back real soon with, mm, I don't know what our schedule looks like this week. Uh, Because we are we are going to be doing a uh, marathon stream starting on Thursday at noon and run our part of the 72 hours is going to run through Friday night at midnight. Uh, We're going to be doing this for the Florence project, uh, which you can learn more about at uh, FERP. (laughs) sorry, that's not helpful. (laughs) You have to imagine it. <laughs> what did you just you mean? have to imagine it being f i r r p dot org. Love to edit this part out because it's disrespectful, but it's extremely uh, fun. So you can learn more at uh, ferp dot org. <laughs> uh, Rob, you keep doing I, this. I can't. I can't help it at this point. I just have to. I just have to read that URL. Uh, F I R R P dot org. Uh, that's the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project. Uh, they work for, they give legal aid services to detainees in Arizona. Uh, and we did an interview with uh, Amalia Luxardo from uh, the Florence Project. Uh, the other day, you can listen to that at the tail end of our most recent episode of Waypoint Radio. Uh, but we're going to be kicking off a charity marathon stream for the Florence Project on Thursday at noon, uh, which you can you know watch over at Twitch.tv/waypoint, and uh, we're going to be doing it for 36 hours, and then we're going to kick it over to our community, who are going to be seeing out the rest of the 72. We're still working out like what our overall programming schedule is going to look like. Uh, I'm pretty sure at least we're going to be doing some XCOM and Tactical Tuesday type stuff, hopefully early, uh, because I'm not letting Austin <laughs> anywhere near that save, uh, given Austin's proclivities. Uh, at like, wow, okay, at like, once we are like 12 hours into this thing, I don't want Austin to be near our precious
0: soldiers.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
0: uh yeah we, we're gonna do a lot of things i think we're gonna do some uh i know uh, natalie wants to do some blackout uh i want to you know uh, breakfast and blackout which <laughs> mm, you know i mean it's a good name but also uh i want to play some dead cells uh for sure do some horror games um yeah figuring that stuff out but if people have suggestions or things you guys uh, you know everyone would want us to do You know, hit us up uh, because we're still kind of ironing out what what exactly that's all. And we
1: may have another podcast for you this week. We might also just be recording a couple podcasts live during this uh, during the stream. We're still sort of working out what our schedule is going to be. It's a little hectic because we are all uh, gathering in New York. We're all migrating uh, for the season to to, to stream together in uh, in New York. So hope you'll join us again. But until then, do not give in to astonishment.